This is Leaving Laodicea, the online podcast of Steve McCraney. I'm glad you're here. Stay tuned, because we've got some exciting things in store for you. Hang tight. You can't handle the truth. In Matthew chapter 5, last week we were talking about uh, how Jesus basically lays out for us what life in the kingdom is all about. And we, uh, we're looking at this first section beginning in verse number 21 where he deals with anger and hatred and murder and how that really impacts true worship. The, the verses we've been looking at are Matthew 5, 21 through 26. And we only looked at the first couple ones last week. The first one is verse number 21. You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. And whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Last week we talked about all the implications of those verses and what Jesus was saying and what he meant and how he was talking about the internal sin and not just the external outward act. But the profound passage comes next. And it always begins with a therefore. Based on what I have just told you, based on the condition of your heart as it relates to other people, based on anger and murder and wrath and and vengeance and unforgiveness, based on all of that, and he begins to talk about worship. I mean, what does worship have to do with murder? It has to do everything with murder. It has to do everything with anger and wrath. And, And the Lord connects those together. He says, therefore, based on what you've just seen and just heard, what I've just taught, all the way from the Beatitudes, if you, if you bring your gift to the altar, that's an act of worship. It's an Old Testament motif here where you're taking your gift, something that costs you something, a sacrifice, and you're going to the Lord and you're offering it on an altar to Him. It's an act of service and an act of worship. If you bring your gift to the altar and there during that process, remember our God prompts in your memory that your brother has something against you. It doesn't say that you have something against your brother, but your brother has something against you. You may be totally innocent, but your brother has something against you. You're to go to the altar, sacrifice, push it out of your mind, and don't worry about it anymore. That's what we do. You're to pretend like it didn't happen. But you know what? That's their fault. That's their misunderstanding. I've done everything I can do. My hands are clean. They're just going to have to deal with that is what we would do. But no, when you're bringing your gift to the altar... And the Holy Spirit brings to your remembrance that your brother has something against you. You're to leave your gift there before the altar. Go no further in worship. And then go your way. And do what? Just leave my gift and live. What am I supposed to do? Do I have a task? Yes, he continues. First, be reconciled. And this word denotes a transition. It's changing one's feelings towards someone or to cause some sort of peace to 
exists between two individuals. First, be reconciled to your brother before you even worship. Be reconciled to your brother. And then after reconciliation, come and offer your gift. I read this and I see how important the whole idea of having a clean heart is when it comes towards worship. But I know that in our own life, we spend most of our times not concerned about the inward part of our hearts, but we spend most of our time concerned about how we're outwardly going to worship in a setting. Jesus said that you cannot truly worship God if you're at odds with one of his creations, which you created in his image. If you're at odds with somebody else, worship is stymied. Worship is, is, is hindered. You can't do that. He didn't say that if you have something against them, Instead, it was if they have something against you that you're supposed to go and be reconciled to them because when we comes to worship, our horizontal relationship, according to this teaching of Jesus, our horizontal relationship with each other is just as important as our vertical relationship with him. Which brings us to the question we're going to talk about today. And it's, a, it's, a, it's not an academic question. It's a question, I'll be honest with you, that uh, most of us really don't know the answer to. Because we've all been conditioned to think worship is something we do ex- externally. Worship is something that happens on the outside. What is worship? And what's the difference between worship or, as Jesus said in John 4, true worship? You've got worship and then you've got true worship. The difference between worship and true worship. And we find out that there's a difference between worship and true worship in Matthew chapter 5, verse 18 and 19, where Jesus talks about the fact, quoting from Isaiah, that you can actually worship in vain. That you can go through all the motions, you can come to church, you can give your tithe, you can sing your songs, you can raise your hand, you can memorize your passages, you can pat each other on the back, you can do, you listen to the sermon, shake the pastor's hand, great job, and none of it means anything. That it could actually be just a worshiping in vain. Look what he says here. He says, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips. That is external. That's something we do on the outside. That's an outward manifestation of something, but we have no idea what's going on on the inside. But their heart, which is internal worship, is far from me. They say the right things. They act the right way. They do the right things, but their heart is full of anger or lust or or who knows what is. Their heart is far from Christ. And in vain, it says, it's pointless that they worship me because they're teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. They're trying to bring God down to a place where they can feel comfortable with him rather than realizing who he truly is. There's vain worship and there's true worship. There's the worship that that we're kind of accustomed to in a church in the West. And there's that kind of worship that Christ talks about that, that I'll be honest with you, very few Christians, maybe very few of you in here have ever experienced. And if you have experienced it, usually it's just in a fleeting moment or a mountaintop experience rather than just actually being able to worship him in a way that he desires. We know how to worship in a way we desire. We have special music in our church service. So we sing a couple songs, somebody comes up, we hand them a microphone, they sing a special song, and then we really like the song, we clap when it's over, man, it's fantastic, I was blessed. It's not about you, it's not about me, it's about him, was he worshipped? Even today, I was watching watching Bethlehem live this morning, and I've been watching a lot of churches, and it's almost like 
because the church doesn't understand inward worship, that we spend all our time trying to manipulate some sort of outward emotional feelings. So almost every church that's rather large today has the rock band up there and they're singing the songs and on the video screen behind them is pictures of the band playing these live photos of them yeah the the lyrics are there too and they're singing songs that you can't sing they're not singing songs designed for you to be caught up in the lyrics and be able to worship they're singing songs designed to entertain you they're, they're, they're great songs, they're radio kind of songs, and, and, and even when they sing, they're not singing in a voice that you can sing, they're singing in a voice that sounds good to the ear. They hit the high notes and the low notes and because we've turned worship into like a spectator sport. And as long as we can get goosebumps, as long as we can feel something, as long as we can raise our hands during that time, somehow worship has taken place. You know, we call, it, we call it praise and worship music. Actually, most of it is praise music, and there's nothing wrong with that. Praising God through great music, it's fantastic. You turn on the radio in a car, listen to 106.9 or, or some other Christian radio station, and you're singing along with the songs, and you're praising Him in the car, but that's a little bit different than worship. Yes, worship can take place during praise, But worship is not an outward experience. Worship is first and primarily an inward experience that then manifests itself outward. What we have done in the church my whole life and probably beforehand has tried to focus just on the externals. I'll talk to a worship pastor and they'll make a statement like this. Man, the people were really worshiping today. And my response is, how could you tell? How do you know? Well, I could tell because they were all standing and they had their eyes closed and their hands raised. Yeah, but they do that at concerts. They do that for secular artists. They, they do that for anything that just moves them emotionally. How do you know that they were worshiping? Was there a changed life? Was there uh, repentance of sin? Was there a contrite spirit? Did people come and, and pledge their allegiance to the Lord? I mean, what happened? No, it was just this. And when the music stopped, the worship stopped. It is possible to worship God in vain. And when we do, we find out that that worship really counts for nothing and it really leaves us empty. Vain worship is a vain reputation of a religious act or services that doesn't impact the heart nor worships God in the truth of who he is. In order to worship God, you have to understand who God is. You could worship an idol, but that's not real worship. You could worship a false caricature of God you've created in your own image, but that's not worship. We have to understand who God is, why is which is why studying the Bible is so important. And then we have to, something has to take place internally before there's anything manifested externally. We have a tendency of just reversing that. So what is it like to worship God from the heart, to worship God internally? And, and how does that contrast or what is it like to, to worship God externally? And again, that's what we all focus on. We worship externally like this, and some people worship like this. doesn't matter. That's all externals. And, and is really worship taking place? That's something that happens on the inside. We, we always judge by outward appearances, but the Lord judges from the heart. What is true worship? look like today? So that's the first question here. What is worship? Worship is, and this is the definition from Wayne Gruden's Systematic Theology, 
This is the doctrinal definition of worship that you will find that most evangelicals hold on to today. Worship is the activity of glorifying God in his presence with our voices and heart. The voices part is external worship. The heart part is internal worship. External worship we can see, we can feel, we can experience. Internal worship, heart worship, is what changes us. It's what moves us into a different direction. It's what makes us fall in love with the Lord. Primarily, this is, every time we look at this, is more of an external definition of worship, which brings the question, okay, I got the part about my voices. I'm to worship God with my voices. Hallelujah, praise God, thank you for saving me. Okay, uh, I just want to tell the Lord how blessed I am that he loves me. And it's, it's great, it's, there's nothing wrong with that. And we're worshiping with our voices, but just because we're saying praise terms with our mouth doesn't necessarily mean worship takes place in our heart. You ever heard somebody who you really knew worshiped the Lord and connected with God verbally praise him? A little bit different than how most people praise him. I mean, there's a passion there. There's a, there's a, there's a love there. There's, there's something that sometimes we sit back and go, wow, well, she, she's, she's really serious. Well, you say, well, I love the Lord. I just feel uncomfortable when it comes to saying anything about it. I feel uncomfortable with an external form of worship, usually because the internal form of worship hasn't taken place. If I'm worshiping internally, it's almost like you can't keep from telling people about how wondrous he is. And all of us have been conditioned and all of us have been trained to be satisfied with some sort of external form of worship, whether we're participants or whether we're just observers of that. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Worship is valuing or treasuring God above all things, above everything. Greater than your job, greater than your family, greater than yourself greater than your fears, greater than your possessions. It's, it's just treasuring him and valuing the fact that, that he loves you and you are in him and he is in you more than all things. Or you could define it this way, make it a little more plainer for us. Love is delighting in God, reverencing God, or being satisfied in God above everything. Everything. What do you have in life? Well, I really don't have much of anything. It just foreclosed on my home. I found out I have cancer. My family has rejected me. I'm confined to this wheelchair and I'm going blind. But I have Christ and I'm satisfied with him. It's, it's like the story I tell all the time about Watchman Nee, who was imprisoned for a little over two years in China. Uh, back in the 30s and 40s, in a coffin. It's a little bit bigger than a coffin, but a a coffin-sized box. And when they brought him out of the box after almost two years of imprisonment, he begged them to put him back in the box because his fellowship and his worship with Christ was so great, he thought he would lose it if he functioned like the rest of us. Because even in that box, I am satisfied and I delight in him. And that's all I need. That's all I need to have that kind of relationship But the Lord, when we worship, we're putting God's character on display. We're showing the attributes that God has, and we're visibly proclaiming that through our worship 
to others. And, you know, if people want to see what God is like, then they could very easily look at the people who love God and how they revere God and how they worship God and be able to determine by them what kind of value they place in God. You buy a brand new car, your brand new sports car that you that you uh, have saved for for years and years and years. It's like your midlife crisis cure. And you wash it every single week. And no, 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 don't, don't. You have to put those little hospital things on your shoes before you can get in the car. And I don't want you to touch the car. Don't ever drive it over 40 miles an hour. We're just going to store it because I value this more than my other cars. Do we value God like that? Do our lives radiate that? And I'm not trying to put a guilt trip on external worship because it has to happen internally. First, worship is the response of the heart to the knowledge of our mind, knowing who God is. That when I have a right understanding of who God is, and my heart is rightly valuing a proper understanding of who God is, there's this, there's this overflow of passion from the heart, recognizing who he is and who we are. It's worshiping the one true God, not the one God that we create in our own image, not the one God that has character traits like we do, not the own God that hates the things we hate and loves the things we love versus of us loving the things he loves and hating the things he hates. Make sense? It's a God that creates us into his own image and gives us the mind of Christ and not a God that we think thinks like us. True worship. The difference between true worship and just maybe what we're accustomed to. What is it like internally? Paul, we've used the phrase spiritual worship. He called it the kind of worship that is just a daily act of love for him. I wake up in the morning and I want to do things. I want to think things. I want to praise things as an outward flow of my love for him. When you first get married, you know, you want to do everything for your spouse. Oh, cook you great breakfasts in the morning or, or open a car door for you every time that you get in. And, you know, I want to compliment you how good you look and you want to look your very best in front of them. And, and then after a while, it kind of wears off, does it not? Shouldn't, but it does because we're actually loving that person more as we get older. And it seems like we would, we would spend more times finding ways to to show her these daily acts of love in our life, but instead we become more inward focused and we take them for granted and problems begin. The same things happen in the church in our relationship to Christ. Now, now here's an internal act of worship. Paul says this, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, not by the fear of condemnation, but by how great and glorious God is, that you present your body as a living sacrifice. You know these verses. Holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, what the New King James says. ESV says, which is your spiritual worship or your act of worship. The greatest act of worship that you can give is to give God the only thing that truly belongs to you, which is you. And he talks about laying your life down at the altar, presenting yourself to God on the altar as a living sacrifice, as your spiritual worship, as your daily act of love to him. 
I don't want to do that because I got things I got to get done. God, I'm going to ask you to bless my work. I'm going to ask you to bless what I want to do. I'm going to ask you to give me strength to follow through with the decisions that I have made. But as far as laying myself down as a living sacrifice, your will, your desire, no matter what, that usually only happens when we're faced with crisis. We can't get out of ourselves. We've got a sick loved one who's about to die or we've got a situation that overwhelms us. And so we cry out and lay ourselves down at the altar because we can't handle it ourselves. And as soon as God resolves that issue, we're back to driving the car ourselves and letting Jesus be our co-pilot. True? But it's something that you do. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you, not the church, not somebody else, that you present, not their body, but your body as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God. Why? Because it's your reasonable spiritual act of worship, something that we need to do. What is worship like internally? If you would, turn to John chapter 4. We've got the greatest picture of that, I think, anywhere in Scripture, where Jesus lays out for the Samaritan woman what worship is like. Now, I won't, I won't go through all the dynamics on this because pretty much what most people do is they spend all the time talking about the conversation that Jesus had with the woman before he talked about true worship. Uh, if you knew the gift of God and who was standing before you, you would ask him for living water. Oh, you know, so you wouldn't have to go to the well to, to get it every day. Oh, because, you know, does your bucket not have a hole in it? And what kind of well do I go to? No, no, whoever drinks your water will drink again. But the water I give them shall flow out of them living waters and all that kind of stuff. And we always focus on that, which is great. And she begins to falter a little bit. Verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come to draw. Jesus said, Sure, go call your husband and come here. I have no husband. Jesus says, You have well said you have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, that you tr- that it is that you spoke truly. She said, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. And I don't want to move any further into my life or what's going to be required of me. So I'm going to fall back on an old argument that everybody debates about in verse number 20. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place we ought to worship. Ah, you made a mistake, woman, because you just gave Jesus the key word of worship was exactly what he was focusing on. He's not going to get into the de- debate about whether you worship in Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim or whether you know, the, the lost people in the northern tribes, the half-breeds of Samaritans, you know, weren't, are worshiping wrong. We're not even going to go into that. What we're going to do is talk about what true worship is all about. Woman, believe me, he says, verse 21, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. Well, how will you worship the Father? You'll worship him with the Holy Spirit who lives within you. He's not confined to a building anymore. He said, you worship what you do not know. We worship, we know what we worship. Our salvation is of the Jews. But in spite of all that, we have verses 23 and 24. It says, but the hour is coming, sorry, and now is when the true worshipers, will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. Which brings us to this whole spirit and truth thing. I mean, what does that mean? What does Jesus mean to worship the Father in spirit and truth? He says it twice here. 
For the hour is coming and now is when the true, as, compa- as compared to the non-genuine, worships, worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must categorically, as a matter of duty, worship Him in spirit and truth. So the question is always, what does that mean? What, what does spirit and truth mean? As a matter of fact, what does spirit mean? Spirit and truth is, is that well, three times it's listed here. The hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit. That's with a small s. These are the same words, by the way. Uh, spirit and truth. The Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit. That's a capital S. And those who worship him must worship him in back to the small s again. Are we talking about my spirit? Are we talking about the Holy Spirit? Are we talking about both? Are we talking about worshiping him with the Holy Spirit? Are we talking about talking about worshiping him with my spirit who's been generated, regenerated by the Holy Spirit? What are we talking about here? Because this is a profound passage when it comes to dealing with worship. Let's look at what it says here. For the hour is coming and now is when the true... And the word true here is not contrast with false. The word true here is contrast with real and genuine and sincere. In other words, Jesus doesn't say these are false worshipers worshiping a false God in contrast to true, but they are insincere. They're not genuine. They're not real worshipers. They're worshiping in vain. They may be worshiping what is true, but they're worshiping in vain. When the true... Worshippers will worship the Father in spirit, where it is pneuma, and of course, this is the human spirit. You'll worship him with your spirit, which is not external at this time. It starts internally, and you'll worship him in truth, your spirit and truth. Truth, of course, means the reality of how things were or what's the essence of a matter. For the Father is seeking. He's actively looking for, striving to find such worshipers to kiss to adore, to fall prostrate before, to pay reverence to him. Have you ever seen worship like this in a church service? Ever? Well, once when I went to revival one time, and it was really weird up at the front, and it just kind of, kind of made me feel creepy. We would rather worship God like by listening. I worship God by, you know, just listening with one ear and checking our email with another, or by standing and singing if we have to, and just as long as we don't have to stand too long and it's kind of some songs we like, or reading our Bible and following along with the preacher, or putting our hour in. That's how we worship. But the word worship here means to kiss and adore, to fall prostrate before. It's like if the Lord showed up here, we'd be on our faces before him, kissing his feet if he would allow us to approach him, to worship him like that and that's external worship that begins on the inside, but even the worship that we do in church doesn't even look anything like this. For the Father is seeking people who worship Him in spirit and truth to do just that. Well, why spirit and why truth? Well, first of all, God is spirit, and this is the divine. This is the Holy Spirit who now lives in us. God is spirit, and those who worship him, who fall before him, who kiss him, who adore him, who lay prostrate before him, must, based on duty, the word says, worship in spirit, that's our human spirit again, and truth. So we're worshiping with our human spirit, and regenerized, or empowered by the Holy Spirit who is in us, regenerated by him. 
Spirit and truth. If you will note that worshiping in spirit is not contrast with worshiping in the body. It doesn't say that you will worship him externally and internally. It doesn't say that you will worship him with your spirit, then you'll raise your hands and cry tears and fall on your knees and, and just cry out, oh, what a sinful man that I am. That's okay, but that's not what's connected. It's not connected with the flesh. It's connected with truth. Spirit and truth. Spirit and exactly who God is. To understand his magnitude and his beauty and his, his radiance and his glory. And, and once we have a clear understanding of who God is, seeing him in truth, then we're able to worship him for who he is and not who we've created him to be. It's truth. Spirit in our hearts and truth. We always focus on the externals, but God is concerned with our heart. True worship always begins in the heart. John Piper says this. I post this on, um, on Facebook this week. When we worship, not false worship, but right worship, good worship, pleasing worship to the Lord, it depends on a right mental grasp of the way God really is, a truth. If we worship an idol of our own creation, we are not really worshiping God. And secondly, worship depends on a right spiritual or emotional or affectional heart grasp of God's supreme value. So true worship is based on a right understanding of God's nature, and it is a right valuing of God's worth. You know, the bumper stickers, Jesus is my co-pilot. How offensive is that? You sit over there, Jesus. If I get tired, you can drive, but I got it from here. You just ride along as my little genie in a bottle and kind of bless me. I mean, why do we do that? God is my homeboy. Or there's a big man upstairs. Or God helps me out of all my jams. He is God. I mean, he is sovereign. He is beautiful. He is lovely. He is gracious. He is giving. And unless we understand the true value of who he is, worship can never take place because you were worshiping someone we have devalued to just being a little bit better than we are. He's a little smarter than we are. He has a little more power than we have. He's like the Star Wars Yoda. You know, he's, he's, he's that guy. Yeah, I'll kind of worship you for what you are and who you can, what you can do, but I'm not going to worship you for for who you are. I was even, I was telling Karen about it today as we're getting dressed. You know, we talked, they're singing the song called The Lion and the Lamb. All will fall before the lion and the lamb. I got that, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the lamb of God. But in our imagery, we have Aslan. You know, I'm Steve and Aslan is really big. And if Aslan wanted to, he could eat me up. And he's he's this powerful lion here, but enough guys could kill him. You know, and, but he's really big, and it's, it's not who God is. It's like me standing not before Aslan, but the planet Jupiter that's getting ready to just scopes everything, and even bigger than that. God is far beyond these little caricatures that we turn him into to make him easy for us to digest, and therefore we don't worship him for the value of who he really is. Because if we understood, the attributes of God internally, it would lead us to worship. In order to worship the Father in spirit and truth, we must know the truth of God and about God and express our adoration, love, and supreme value of that truth from our inner being, which is our 
heart. Worship is not just a physical thing. We have to have a heart and a head. It's both engage our emotions and engages our thoughts when it comes to worship. I find this whole deal when it comes to the Spirit pretty amazing in, in John chapter 3 when Jesus is having this conversation with Nicodemus. You, you'll remember it. It's before we get to the John 3.16 passage. Nicodemus, Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And then Jesus says this. Listen very carefully. Jesus says, most assuredly, I say to you, that unless one is born of water and the capital S, Holy Spirit, the divine spirit of God, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. We have no problem with that. You have to have the Holy Spirit living within you. He's our deposit, our guarantee of our future inheritance to come. He's our pledge, as the book of Ephesians talk about. Got that. But then he says this, that which is born of flesh is flesh. Understand that. But that which is born of the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit, is the human spirit. It's the same word, human, pneuma here. That which is born of God, now regenerated, is a Holy Spirit that has been regenerated in the inner man like Christ. It's not just the human spirit of a lost person, but it's the human spirit of you. It's a transformation that takes place on the inside. It's something that takes place after regeneration. Back to John 4. But the hour is now coming, and now is, when the true contrast with not genuine, worshipers will worship the Father in a regenerated spirit that God has given us at salvation. And truth, for the Father seeking those to worship Him, God is spirit, the same spirit who regenerated us, and those who worship Him must worship in this regenerated spirit created in the image of God, with the mind of Christ, adoring Him for everything that He is. Worship comes from a regenerated spirit, the ones that you have, if you truly know Christ, that you probably have locked up in a box somewhere because you don't have time to deal with him. I got work to do. The last thing I want to do is caught up in some worship experience at six o'clock in the morning where I'm praising the Lord and show up late for work. Why? Because you value work more than some intimate, passionate time with the Lord. That shows me You've never had an intimate, passionate time like that with the Lord. Because if you did, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. This is from John Piper. Truth without emotion produces dead orthodoxy. And a church are full or half full of artificial admirers like those who write generic anniversary cards for a living. Hey, happy anniversary, sure love you, cutest things in the world. Don't mean anything, you're just writing them off. On the other hand, emotion without truth, hyper-emotion, produces empty frenzy and cultivates shallow people who refuse the discipline of rigorous thought. But true worship is not on either one of those extremes. True worship comes from people who are deeply emotional and who have a love deep and, and who love deep and sound doctrine. Strong affections for God rooted in truth are the bone and marrow of biblical worship. Those who want to worship me must worship me in spirit and in truth, with the innermost being, with emotion, with passion, with love, with adoration, but worshiping what they know to be true is who Christ is biblically and not who our culture says he is. 
He also gives an example here that I thought was great. I'm going to share with you called the fuel furnished and heat of worship. And the imagery is that just that you have a, you have a furnace. Furnace is empty. And what we want to do is we want to get some heat that comes out of this furnace. So we find out the fuel of worship is the truth of God. In other words, we take the word of God, the truth of God and the wood and we put it or coal and we put it in our furnace. And then the furnace, of course, is the worship of worship is the spirit of man. It's from our furnace, from our inner being that this heat comes from, fed by the word of God. We find that the heat of worship that is exposed, of course, is the affections of reverence and love and trust and contrition and gratitude and joy, the kind of things that those who truly worship him experience, but the fire of worship has to come from the Holy Spirit. It's not something that can be manifest ourselves. We can have all the great praise musics in the world. We can have little vignettes and and we can have, you know, uh, plays and we can have an engaging pastor and we can do all those kind of things to make us feel something. But the Holy Spirit has to generate and bring the heat and fire of that spiritual worship. He goes on to say this. The fuel of worship is a true vision of the greatness of God. Do you have that? Do you understand how truly great he is? If so, the sins, the small sins we tend to commit every single day, we would not do anymore. We wouldn't. The the time that we spend not with him would be time we would view wasted. Fuel of worship is a true vision of the greatness of God. The fire that makes the fuel burn white hot is the quickening of the Holy Spirit. The furnace made alive and warm by the flame of truth is our renewed spirit and the resulting heat is our, of our affections is powerful worship, pushing its way out of our externals, out of our confessions or longings or acclamations or tears or songs or shouts, bowed heads, lifted hands, obedient lives. It doesn't matter how we express it outwardly because it comes from an inward drive to be more like Christ. Now, I'm not going to keep you much longer And I want you to really pay attention to this part. I don't know what worship is like for you. I don't know what your experience is like with the Lord. So I'm going to give you an example of what, how worship grows internally and what people experience in worship. And I'm going to use primarily the Psalms to share this with you because the Psalms are full of incredible worship verses. And we're going to ask the question, what does spirit and truth worship look like? I mean, I know what my worship's like, and you know what your worship's like, and and you know that you would like it to be better than it is, or maybe it is better than it used to be. But what does it mean to worship him in spirit and truth? And again, yours may be somewhat different. But this is what we find from the scripture. Listen very carefully. Perhaps, as you begin to worship, The first response of the heart at seeing the majestic holiness of God is stunned silence. Just to sit before him in silence. Like you and I would if we saw something that took our breath away. You take someone who's a little child who's never been to the ocean. Never. And they bring him up and stand him on the shore and they look as far as they can see and they see nothing but blue. And every time that happens, the mouth falls open and they look and they're overwhelmed by the the bigness of what they've seen. I've never seen something this big. It just seems like it goes on forever. It's my vision of eternity here. And then they don't talk. 
They don't say, hey, that's great. You know, hey, let's go get something to eat there. They're overwhelmed by the majesty of who he is. Maybe that's how it begins. We find it in the Psalms. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. Psalm 46.10. And later on in Habakkuk. But the Lord is in his holy temple. So let all the earth keep silent before him. I mean, if I was having a conversation with Karen about fixing the lawnmower or where we're going to go on vacation or something somebody said to me that irritated me, and all of a sudden I came into the presence of God, do you think I would still have that conversation? We'd be shocked in the absolute silence when we realize how powerful and majestic and, and wondrous he is. That's why in your private worship times, it's very important to get away. So you can just spend some time in silence before him. But when you're in that silence, all of a sudden it it begins to give you an awareness and reverence at the wonder and sheer magnitude of who God is. I'm in stunned silence as I'm coming before his presence. Book of Hebrews says to boldly come before his presence. And all of a sudden I realize how, how incredible he is and this reverence and this awe and this shock kind of takes over. This reverent holy fear. Psalm 33, 8. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Do you stand in awe of God? Well, no, I don't really have time for that. I only stand when we do it at church. And we don't have a real understanding of the value of who he is. We've created a really small God. And I've noticed I do this a lot in my counseling appointments. It seems like over the last couple of years, every single struggle somebody's facing with, the root of all of that is the fact that their God is too small. Their God's too small. I know I trust him for this, but I'm just worried about it. your God is too small. God is too small. It's like we don't think he's going to handle this, so we worry and we fret. And your God is too small because we feel comfortable with a small God, with a Jesus that we see in the movies, with a buddy, with a guy we can put our arms around, rather than this indescribable, majestic, holy, God, who we can't even comprehend. And once you begin to get a glimpse of who he is, we stand in awe of him. We reverence him because of his sheer magnitude. And when that happens, all of a sudden your your lack of holiness comes to play. He is holy and he is righteous and he is huge and he is magnanimous and he's beyond comprehension. And I... Like Peter said when Jesus confronted him, get away from me, Lord, I'm a a sinful man. I'm a man with sinful lips. And it drops us to our knees realizing how we have shamed him and how we have abused him and, and how we have taken his love for granted by our sins that we thought in our small God that he didn't really care about. But he's, how can I do this to you? We have a holy dread, almost a fear of his righteous power. Isaiah 8.13, the Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Oh my gosh, what what have I done? I I can't believe I sinned that way. I mean, God could crush me if he desired to. But as for me, I will come into your house in a multitude of your mercy. But in fear, I will worship towards your holy temple. But God is gracious and God is loving and God is good. 
And you will find that this dread is not a paralyzing fright full of resentment against God because of his absolute authority and his judgment. But this understanding of who you are and who he is finds its release in brokenness and humbleness and contrition and grief for our ungodliness. If you spend any time in worship before the Lord, you will not spend time standing before him. Because the deeper you get into worship, you find that your knees will buckle and you will fall on your face when you realize how truly powerful and majestic he is and what a worm you and I are. We never do that, though. No, I just worship God sitting in a chair. I worship God laying sitting at my desk, prop my feet up, laying down in bed, sitting in a rocking chair, taking it easy. Okay, but that's a limited worship. Because if you ever seriously move to this phase of worship, it just it crushes you crushes you when you realize how great and glorious he is and how you have squandered the life that he's given you and trampled on the blood of his son. The sacrifices of God, Psalm 51, are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. That's what he desires from us, a brokenness. He's a, he's a great, better father than you are. To the best of us in here as a father. And when we come to him broken, he forgives us and he restores us and he stands us back up and he wipes away our tears and, and we love him even more. But it has to come to, to that point in your worship. And then mingled with feelings of genuine brokenness and contrition, there's this longing that rises up in you for God. I want more of God. I want God to be in me. I want God to empower me. I, I just, I love this God. I, I can't believe he's done this for me. He, he, he could have crushed me. He could have killed me. He could have been done. I would have been done with me, but, but instead he forgave me and he restored me and his son died for me. And I just want more of him. I want more of him. I have a deep desire for him. As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul, so pants my soul for you, O God. Our soul thirst for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? It's all I want. It's all I desire. Rather than just taking God and having him season our life to make us a little better as we do our own stuff. Instead, he becomes our life. He becomes all there is for us. Oh God, you are my God. Early I will seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. I am parched. I am starving. And like I would crave water and drink, I crave you because I realize what gracious gift you have given me. And when we're contrite like that, God is not unresponsive to it. But he comes and he lifts the load of our sin and fills our heart with gladness and gratitude that simply cannot be contained. This is what worship is truly like, an inward worship, which will naturally manifest itself outwardly. Look what it says in Psalm 30. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have put off my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness to that end, to the end that my glory may sing praise to you and not be silent. Oh, Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. What we try to do is we try to get people to sing glory and praise to him outwardly without this taking place inwardly. And this is the life changing worship that God has as an inheritance for every single one of us. 
if we will simply embrace it. But the joy that we have doesn't come from looking back at what God has done in his past glories. It rises from the hope of what he is doing and going to do in the future. Psalm 42. Why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for, it, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. Just to look at his face. Psalm 130, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I do hope. This is worship, an inward worship. In the end, the heart longs not for God's gifts, for the good things he's going to give us, but for God himself. We don't seek God's hand anymore. We seek his face, just to, to his presence. To see him and know him and to be in his presence is what we desire more than anything. Beyond this, there's, there's, there's no other quest. There's no task. There's no goal. There's nothing else that matters but this. But words can't even describe what that experience is like. We can call it pleasure, joy, delight, but there are weak words to even describe what that experience of worship is like with him. Psalm 24. One thing I desired for the Lord, that he will bless my business, that he will help me pay off my house, that he will heal me of my... No, no. Those are just temporal things. One thing I desired of the Lord, that which I'll seek, I will dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. I want to be in his presence and behold his presence all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire at his temple. Nothing else matters than that. Psalm 16, you will show me the paths of life because in your presence, God, is fullness and joy and at your right hand are pleasures beyond any sin or any accomplishment I can do in the flesh. These are some of the things that happen to someone when they do not worship the Lord in vain. Now, I'm not talking about corporate worship in here. I'm talking about the worship that you have alone with him, that you make time for him, that you set other things aside that you rather do and spend time just with him. Let me get to the crux of the matter and draw this to a close. In the Westminster, Westminster Shorter Catechism, I don't know if you know what the catechism is. It's a way of of teaching doctrine, which is popular in some reform circles. It was very popular back in the uh, 17th and 1800s. What they would do is, is they would basically ask questions and answers. Question, answer, question, answer, question, answer. And you would memorize the questions and the answers and the scripture verses and get an understanding of, of proper doctrine. The very first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism is this. What is the chief end of man? Why are you here? Why were you created? What is the purpose of your life? What is your calling? What is your vocation? Why did God choose you? And the answer is this. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To glorify God and enjoy his presence, his goodness, his grace, his love, his mercy, his intimacy forever. Or another way of saying it is to the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. 
I mean, we've lost that in the West. We've lost that in, in our whole culture about church. It becomes a spectator sport. Christianity becomes like a club membership. But to, but to glorify God in heaven by enjoying him forever. Do you enjoy God? If you enjoy NASCAR, you wear NASCAR hats, you watch NASCAR on television, you spend a lot of money to go to NASCAR races, and you have your favorite driver. If you enjoy football, you got your favorite team, and you got the decal on your car, and you can't wait to hope they're in the Super Bowl. If you enjoy making money, you spend all your time making money, thinking about money, all that. If you enjoy your children, you talk about them all the time. You blow up Facebook with pictures of all your kids. Isn't he cute? Isn't she cute? Oh, it's so cute. And all that kind of stuff. True? If we enjoy stuff, we spend time about it. We talk about it. We want to we schedule our life around. We want to get through the drudgery. If you enjoy golf, man, I want to just get this week over. I'm going to, it's Monday, Friday I get out because Saturday I'm playing golf. And we go through everything we can in order for that payday to do something we enjoy. Do you enjoy God? Do you enjoy him? Not fear him and reverence him and stand in awe of him. Yes, but do you enjoy him? I love talking to him. I love worshiping him. I love him speaking to me uh, through his word. I love hanging around other people that he loves. I just, God is just the, it's the most important thing in my life. Do you enjoy God? Do you love your time with him? If we did, we'd struggle doing other things because we spent so much time with God. But every, and I speak mostly to men, every man I've talked to says, I need to spend more time with God because we enjoy doing other things. It's exactly the opposite. No, my job requires me to do it. Why do you have the job? Because it gives me, it pays me what I want. So you enjoy money, you enjoy the size of your house, you could down. There's all, we have plenty of options here. Do you really enjoy spending time with him? Is it like, God, I, I, I hate to have to go to work, but, I, but you've given me this job, but this job isn't about me. This job is my mission field. I'm going to go and proclaim your goodness and the, the experience I just had with you. I'm going to share with everybody there. Just the doing part of my life. Do we view it that way? Not in the West. It's always about us first. Is your prayer time? Is your worship time, is your Bible study time the highlight of your day? Are there something else that eclipses that in your life? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever or by enjoying him forever. Are you fulfilling the chief end in your life? Do you know? How to worship the Lord in spirit and truth? You ever been taught to? You ever seen it happen? Do you want to know? Well, here's what we're going to do. We're not going to concentrate anything on the externals. I mean, we do that. Every church does that. We want everybody to stand. I don't know why, but I guess we just do. So we stand and, you know, and then we sing songs. We want everybody to sing and we kind of judge how things are going well by how many people are singing and how loud they sing. Well, that's all externals. I mean, there's, there's no indication that worship's taking place on the inside. It's just something that we do. So we're going to have a time of worship here. 
What we're going to do is we're going to take away all the externals. You don't have to stand. You can sit. You don't have to sing. You don't have to do anything. You can just do whatever you feel like doing. Karen's going to come up here in a few minutes, and she's going to play a little, and she's going to sing some of the songs. I will have them on the screen behind me if you choose to sing. If you choose not to sing, that's okay. But what I want you to do is I want you to begin the process of worshiping internally. The songs don't, the songs aren't worship. The songs give you an opportunity to worship, but worship has to take place first inside of your heart. And so what I want to do is make it really simple. As you go through these steps we just talked about, I want you just to reflect on who God is. Just sit here and close your eyes and think about who he is, what he's done for you, how how powerful he is, how, how magnanimous he is, and how little you are, and how you've rejected him and forsaken him and haven't even listened to him when he wanted to talk to you, how you, how you have valued everything else in your life other than this. I was reading an article that talked about the change in church in the last 20 years. Is that 20 years ago when people would go on vacation, wherever they went on vacation, they would go to church. Nobody hardly ever does that anymore. When you go on vacation, if the vacation happens to go over a Sunday, our response is good, I get to sleep in this Sunday and don't have to go to church. It's a worship thing. It's, it's, where's that joy? So I want you to spend some time reflecting on that privately. I'm just you and your heart. It's not, it's not corporately. It's not us. It's not, you don't have to say anything. You don't have to sing. You don't have to stand. You don't have to do anything. We'll take a few minutes and just give you an opportunity just to reflect on who you are and who God is and how good and gracious he is to you. And then Karen's going to come up and play. If you'd like to stand and sing, that'd be great. If you'd like to sit and just reflect on the music, that'd be great. If you'd like to do nothing, that'd be fine. You want to lay on the floor, I don't care. That's up to you. But I want to I wanna hope today that you'll just get a taste of a little deeper depth in your private worship. That when you go home this afternoon or tonight or whenever, that you'll just drive away, get away from all your family, everything that you have to do, you'll turn off your cell phone, you'll turn off the internet, you'll turn off the cable, and you'll spend some time just in silence before the Lord and watch how he begins to move you in a powerful way to love him more. Amen? I'm going to pray and then just reflect on these things. Let me pray.